everyone. Peter Kapsner of Deeper Magic here. We are on part two this week with Rebecca Ree studying the story of Sarah and Abram and Hagar and Ishmael. If you missed last week's episode, you can always go back and listen to that. Otherwise, stay tuned, grab your Bibles, pick up a pen and paper, and listen to part two with Rebecca Ree on Deeper Magic. You're listening to Deeper Magic. By the way, I'm back with uh, Anna's morning coffee here, but Anna, you just need to know that we're out of oat milk, so we had to go back to the half and half for you. I'm so sorry. Oh, that's a devastating. I, yeah, and oat actually. milk. I mean, Rebecca, since we're into the precision of words right now, I know it's Hebrew and not Greek, but but there's no such thing as oat milk, right? I mean, it's oat juice because milk comes from mammals, from what I understand. Please don't just, call it oat. Juice. It's just part of the deceit in which we live, Rebecca. Wouldn't you say? <laughs> That's awful. Yeah, so I hope you enjoy your half and half. But Rebecca, I just when when you and I first chatted about this and we got into Genesis 21, I was puzzled over the wild donkey of the man. And I just think that that phrase has been used and misused in a lot of if people even want to approach that phrase, they sort of make it seem and assume as if then the people who descended from Hagar and Ishmael, and oftentimes people of the Islamic faith will trace their lineage and heritage back to Abraham through Ishmael, that people would say, well, see, there's sort of these wild people, sort of almost like half-human kinds of people. And, and it's really troubling when people bring this up. But I, I did some study on this, and I think what the reason why Hagar is able to say, you're the God who sees me after these prophecies and these promises, is that that was actually a compliment in that moment about being a wild donkey because of the strength and the independence and mm. the fact that his line and his future and then therefore her future would persist for all the generations to come. So this was not like he was some animalistic person. This was about in the lack of your independence, Tagar, in the lack of your agency, your future will have independence and agency. He will be strong and independent and have lands of his own was how I understood it after I went through it. And it just changed the entire story for me. Yes. Yes, I would say that too. And I would say also, it's talking about Ishmael himself. It's not just talking about Ishmael's offspring. I mean, he's not, he's not going into it the way he goes into um, Abraham's offspring. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so quick to say, see, he's a wild, wild donkey and everybody that proceeds from him is a wild donkey. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very fair. Definitely. Yeah. So, um, well, what, and I want to point it. Go yeah. ahead. No, I was just going to say, do you, uh, well, go ahead and point that out. And then I want to return back to the, the theme of just this idea to stop right now and just talk about, is it enough for us to live in a future promise within present, very difficult circumstances. I know that some of the application of, of today, but this would be a great time to stop and talk about it. But yeah, where were you going to go? And then we'll return back to this. So um, I just wanted to point out that still no one but the angel of God is speaking to Hagar. Mm. Mm. But we do have this little interlude between Abraham and Hagar that has everything to do with sight, with eyes. Um, so first, the trouble begins when Sarah Sarah sees Isaac, uh, Isaac being laughed over by, we don't know exactly what happened. Maybe it was derisive laughing. Uh, laughing. Um, Ishmael would have been 14 years old at this point, according to the, the counting in the text. Um, so she sees Ishmael, and that's what maybe it puts her over the edge. And it so enrages her that she wants to banish the very child whose conception she orchestrated. Mm. Um, 
And it, and in verse 11, it says, and the thing was very displeasing to Abram. And it, again, that's one of those translations. It literally says, and the, this and this was evil in Abram's eyes. Mm. Um, and then later God says, do not let this be evil in your eyes mm. because of the boy and your slave woman. Now, this is where the terminology changed. She's now an ama, And that oh. means, yes, yeah, she is connected to Abram. And here you see, you realize this is a little scene of mother, father, and child um, together before, you know, he sends them away. And God says, whatever Sarai says to you, do, because it's through Isaac that your offspring shall be named. So what's good to do in Sarah's eyes is evil to do in Abram's eyes. And he's no longer neutral about things like he was in 16. And as I said before, Ishmael is 14 years old, and um, you don't even hear him speaking to his mother or his father. Um, you know, and, and when, when Abram later on is going to be asked in Genesis 22 to sacrifice his own son, and this kind of pre- is a kind of prelude to that with him putting provisions on his uh, concubine's, you know, shoulder and sending him off, it's kind of like, now that they've had this relationship, now that they've had this child, she he bears responsibility for her, and he re- bears responsibility for uh, Ishmael. Mm. So um, makes you wonder since God sanctions it, you know, specifically this time, whether it wasn't so sanctioned the first time when Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. Mm. Well, and I have a couple of quick questions about that. I mean, first sure. of all. I think the implications are really interesting that Sarai names him Isaac because she laughed and then others will laugh with her about this. And I think it's really interesting that then we turn around and see Ishmael laughing at or potentially with Isaac. We're not really sure what that connotation is there. And Sarai is angry about it. And so even though that's what she named her son and that's why she named him that. And so I think that's yeah. really interesting. And I, I don't know about you guys, but for me, that seems to imply more that Sarai doesn't want them to be a part of that. She doesn't want them to be part of that laughter um, in some capacity. And probably there's a little bit of bitterness and and guilt at herself for having orchestrated that situation in the first place when then this son was promised to her, um, even though she did laugh. And then even later, when, when Abram is called to sacrifice Isaac that holds some some pretty heavy implications for Sarai as well because she orchestrated the birth of this other heir this other child and then is the reason that they were sent away and now potentially her heir is going to be taken from her as well and so it's like that that story now takes on a new light from Sarai's perspective in the sense of like oh this is something that she has been trying to control all along this is something that she has been trying to have power over all along and now both heirs are taken from her in that sense and it's only when Avram is willing to give up Isaac and actually sacrifice him that God is like okay you understand that this is not in your control and you can keep your child and it's interesting because that very well may be true but the the storyteller isn't interested giving Sarai the spotlight in the beginning of all of this, but then she disappears. She's not at all interested in, um, you know, giving us information about how she's processing this. Mm. We just know that the, the theme of laughter is a good idea. It, it's, a, it's a good um, example 
of how she's kind of in some ways disappears from the text and Abram starts coming forward with Isaac. Because in the beginning, she laughed when the angels said, or the, the, messen- the, the mysterious messengers about this time next year, you shall have a child. And she's in the tent and she overhears that and she laughs. And presumably that's like derisive laughter. And then the angel says, why did you laugh? He's like, no, I didn't laugh. Like she was all you know, nervous about it. <laughs> yep. um, so that's the first time we see the laughter. And then it gets carried over into this celebratory laughter. And then it gets turned over into this, um, you know, this possible mockery. So uh, again, with the 14 year old laughing at the wean, the wean child. Um, so it just goes to show that um, built in ambiguity and how it forces us to hear those bells ringing and wonder what they ultimately say. But we, if there is no specific statement from the storyteller, we have to realize we have every right and every benefit to speculate. But in the end, we can't specifically say. And it's always good to, to get, go up to that point but then say, but we, but we don't know for certain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I just I want to go back to Hagar and and again that future, but one more piece on this, Rebecca. I think it's helpful that people, I, certainly evangelical community in which I was primarily raised and with which I'm most familiar, there there is a sacredness about the biblical text that I think really does matter in terms of how we how we approach it. But I think some people don't really feel the freedom to do what you just said, which is to speculate, to wonder, to take a stab at, to not say that this is now dogmatic and I know mm-hmm. that this is part of the story and this is you know what the authoritative word is saying, but there's this middle ground of midrash is what it's called, or speculation or wondering about some of these uh-huh. things. And that we're really in a, that we're in very good historical company when we feel the freedom to approach the text in that way. Yes, and that's why I loved studying Hebrew texts with Jews. Because it's their text, they had a certain playfulness and creativity about it um, that I just soaked up. Mm-hmm. I just loved it. And I, I one time went, visited a church um, where it was uh, extremely, uh, I don't want to, I know it's uh, conservative is the only word that comes to my mind, but they did, anou- did not allow women to speak in the church and um, did not allow instruments in the church. So it was, it was a, its own world. And one of the statements I heard there was, when the Bible speaks, we speak. When the Bible is silent, we, we are silent. And I thought, no, when the Bible is silent, we speculate. <laughs> <laughs> yep. When the Bible is silent, we dig deeper. <laughs> yes. Well, and don't you think, no. it, it, I sense that people would fall in love a bit more with the text if that was sort of the vein, if there was some some freedom with boundaries with which to look at some of these things. It feels like it would be a much more enjoyable experience to get into the Bible versus being so constrained. Yeah. Right. And part of what we have talked about as well, dad, is that um, when we were talking in the garden of Eden uh, ages and ages ago, one of the things that we talked about is that doubt itself was not the problem in the garden. It was the fact that they didn't take that doubt to God and they didn't take that questioning to God. Yeah. And so with the idea of God's name being a verb and us being verbs, it makes sense that the interaction with the text would be this dynamic questioning, digging, speculating, wondering what is going on here. And I think the problem is, is when we try to do that on our own and we try to draw concrete conclusions from that instead of letting it be a conversation and a questioning with God of mm. what does this mean and where is this going? 
Yeah, I mean, Rebecca, I, I would have, it, the, the conversations we've had in the past, that sounds like it would be a, a familiar process and maybe an interesting way to do a Bible study versus here are your 13 questions, make sure you pull out the answer, and then that's that. Well, people, I, I find that the, the people I've come from, um, I came from a pretty conservative, orthodox, evangelical background, and they were often um, in their love of the text and their love of God very eager to get to the application part. Like, mm. we, okay, so we've just read this. How do we apply it to our lives so we're not sinning and we're doing the right thing? <laughs> and um, I, I feel like that's a, 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 you know, a really wonderful question to ask. And ultimately what we're after is how does it impact our lives yeah. and the way we treat each other. But to get there in the most nuanced and pointed and informative way is to do all this speculative work before we're like, you know, you, and people are like, well, we just, you know, we don't like looking at the crucifixion. It's too gory and all that. I'm like, you can't get to Easter until you watch your savior come to a violent end. Mm. Like you can't, you don't get to skip over That's a, Then you're robbing, you know, the end of its meaning. Mm. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so would you like me to, well, I just think at the risk then of going right to applications. <laughs> so, yeah. No, we did. I, I would love to get more of the story up. But if we can just stay for a moment uh, here, because I know we're going to go into a new spot in the story. But I, it, it's been very intriguing to me, this idea of I don't want to impose on Hagar's psyche when God is giving her these yeah. promises and, and what she says and everything. But I just you have asked that question a couple of different times and I've referenced it about how do you understand your life when maybe all of the things of your life that you would hope or want don't and won't then come to fruition? And just as a silly example, I remember when I kind of woke up one morning in my thirties or maybe early forties and I thought, Oh gosh, as a person who loves to travel, there's going to be a whole lot of this world. I'm actually not going to see. I'm not probably going to see the great wall of China. I'm not going to scuba dive at the great barrier reef. I'm not going to experience winter in Siberia, like all of these different things that I would have loved to have done. And I think as you get older, you realize that so many of the things that you would have hoped for to experience in your life are just simply not going to happen. And, and I think on the flip side, young people uh, understandably have this incredibly wide horizon uh, of life in front of them of possibilities. But I guess the question for all of us is, are we okay with the life that we have as we experience it and, and trust, uh, trust the shepherd in that and know that there's going to be other people that we know or don't know, other people in the community, other people that might be part of our families that experience this. And so in some certain way, we're all together in it. I, I'm not even sure if that any of that makes sense, but it relieves the anxiety of my life a little bit to think, even if I am not going to see or do all of what I would hope to see or do that there's people that I love and care about that, that will. So I, I don't know if that makes sense or if that's even fair to the story. What would you say about that, Rebecca? I would say too, um, you know, it's definitely good to recognize uh, limits because I think a lot of that goes on behind the scenes. Like Abram and Abraham in this scene, you know, when God says to him, go ahead and do what Sarai wants you to do, even though it seems evil in your eyes. Abraham recognizes his limits. He doesn't try to fight against that. I mean, Sarah, Sarah, Sarah got, you know, everybody in trouble in the beginning because she says, God has prevented me. And she believes that God has prevented her from having children. But instead of re re saying, okay, there's a limitation here, 
she just, you know, thinks I'm going to fight it tooth and claw. And there are a lot of problems result from that. Mm. Um, so, and, you know, when this time when Abraham is, Abraham is told, you know, send them away, he doesn't fight that. It's almost, that's why I was saying it's kind of a prelude to Genesis 22 and God says, sacrifice your only son. Well, he doesn't fight that either. Both times he gets up early in the morning, gets the provisions and on they go, you know? Mm. So, um, yeah, I think too, the idea of eternity and whatever we don't get done here or what, you know, whatever um, goals we don't meet here, there is another ongoing narrative that will be happening on the other side where we will get those opportunities. Yeah, it's that's a very I've been kicking around with a theology friend of mine the idea. Why do we think the story stops as soon as Jesus returns and we're just going to be singing, you know, an endless stream of worship songs on on loop? I, I have a I feeling. I mean, the chorus of "Good Good Father" goes on oh, for gosh, a yeah, while, please, no, so I, that'll take up a solid chunk of eternity. I, I would at best be in purgatory if that was the situation. <laughs> um, so, well, there's two more themes that we want to make sure we tease out from the story from your notes, Rebecca. Do you want to take us into the next part of this? Sure. So the next. Um, theme that I wanted to um, bring out from Genesis 16 to 21 is the theme of hearing. And it's so, um, so hearing is the whole reason why Ishmael is called Ishmael, because when God meets Sarah, uh, sorry, when God meets Hagar in the desert, he's, you know, he says, um, you're with child, you'll, you'll bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed. And it really just means heard. The Lord has heard your affliction. We don't, as readers, get to overhear Hagar's cries over the course of Sarai's mistreatment of her. We don't even know if she directs them to God. We just know that she cried out. Um, But God does hear those cries, and he wants to memorialize that fact in Hagar's child's name. Now, in Genesis 21, when the water in the skin is gone, she puts the child under one of the bushes, and says it says she lifted up her voice and wept and then it says and god heard the voice of the boy and the angel of the god said to hagar fear not for god has heard the voice of the boy where he is now i read that i thought it's hagar who lifts up her voice and weeps but it's the angel the angel said it's the boy who god hears why is there this discrepancy between Who's doing the crying that we overhear and who's getting heard by God? Because um, he doesn't say that God has heard your cries and Ishmael's. It's, no, God has heard Ishmael's cries. Um, so two things came to mind, which was is already the first one was God has already established that he hears Hagar in Genesis 16 because he gave her this big prophecy and she's been living with that. So, you know, he maybe doesn't repeat himself because he's already established the fact that she's got, she's got his attention. But I think this, and the number two reason was the storyteller wants us to know that um, it's a sign of divine favor that Ishmael himself grabs God's attention. Um, and I would say it's reassuring as a parent. And this is like a really fine line that I have to walk. We're talking, you've been kind of joking about human agency, but this is where it comes into like really, really um, sharp focus is, you know, as a caretaker of any sort um, who has someone who depends on you, it's reassuring to know that a sovereign God does not strictly need you to intervene, 
with your child. Hang, hang on a minute, has- Rebecca. You're breaking yeah. all of my rules as a parent <laughs> right now. I have full, a, uh, you know, I have full agency over my kids. Are you are you trying to tell me sure that God do. actually cares about my children and that you're not you're not a, you're not letting me finish the thought though. <laughs> I think I'm all right. Well, I'm just I'm just horrified at the notion that I don't have full control over all things. Oh no no no! I'm talking. I'm talking about control. I'm talking about responsibility. Oh, okay. oh, there you go. Okay, I think I'm just messed up as a parent. Okay, continue. Yep. This okay. <laughs> so, um, it's in- interesting. It's, it's interesting to note that God has an independent relationship with your child and attends to their needs. Where it says, "Pick up the pick up the boy," or God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. God is, knows where your child is, and God hears them. And he may use you much of the time to do really, really important stuff like get the water that's going to save the kid. But if you reach the end of your rope, as Hagar does here, you are not the one ultimately in charge of your child's survival mm-hmm. and well-being if God has claimed that child as his own. It's a really fine line to walk, but it's one that special needs parents walk all the time because a special needs kid daily, hourly will present you with needs that are just so obviously beyond your uh, ability to fill. And then there's the question of the future, like, what kind of future are they going to have? What's going to happen when I'm older, when I can't physically, you know, take or I'm no longer around? Like, what's going to happen? That, you know, it's, it's important to know that there's a certain uh, claim God has over your child and a certain relationship they have with each other um, that is apart from you. Well, and I know this is part of the story too. So, so kidding aside, but I, I think of uh, parents uh, of children that maybe the mom or the dad uh, contracts an illness at, at way too early of an age in their thirties or forties or fifties. And, and I have certainly am acquainted with that kind of grief of people that we know that have lost parents at a really early age. And I think that's, that's probably one of the most devastatingly difficult parts of that journey is the parent saying, I'm not going to be there for my kids. And and I don't know of any other way to, to have any measure of peace other than the kinds of things you're talking about right now. Yeah, no, I know. And over the course of um, my son's life up to this point, um, there have been varying levels of words spoken to us that um, reflect one of the, I've had over the course of the years of his life, I've had at least two people I remember before he was speaking at all. He started speaking when he was five and a half. So yeah, I had to wait till five and a half years old to hear mama. Mm. That was a hard wait. Um, So, um, I've had people come up and say, I had this amazing dream about your boy. And he was reciting the alphabet to me. And now he does that. <laughs> he really mm-hmm. does do that. Mm-hmm. And people who've had certain intuitions about him and certain um, scriptures for him. And just, it's been amazing to me and very, very um, comforting to know that, yes, there's, I am, I am charged to do such, with such a heavy burden in terms of his daily care and his daily needs in and out. But there's a God there that has a plan for him. And ultimately, in some ways, I, I'm here to do my part, but I'm not fully and ultimately responsible mm-hmm. for him. That's God. That's on God. Yeah. And Anna, if I can just, I mean, I can ask you yeah. as you're stepping into adulthood and, and all of that, I, 
I'm sure that this has been part of your journey as well as what does it mean to have my parents sort of always care for me on some level because parents always do, but mm-hmm. also moving into your own sense of faith journey and independence and, and agency and all of that. This is a story that really affects all of us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with the idea of kind of trying to find my way in a lot of new things and also trying to figure out, okay, what does it mean to be an adult where I'm still, I mean, currently I'm not living at home, but I will be moving back home relatively soon, um, kind of for an indeterminate period of time. And so it's this thing of like, how do I be an adult while I'm living at home? And what does that look like? How do I figure out what I believe and what I don't believe? And all of those sorts of ideas. And it's just, it's, it's weird because it's kind of one of those things where I take it day by day and I just kind of live my life and course correct as I feel is needed. Um, yeah, but it's, it's a continuous conversation between me and my community and me and God. And it doesn't necessarily mean that I take on board everything that my community has to say one way or another. Um, but it does mean that that conversation is a really important part of the kind of discovering process. Um, and one of the things that you and I, Dad, have talked about as well is that sometimes um, in the past, mostly where I've used this has been in studying theology or in studying biblical history or whatever, where as I'm learning about ideas, I'll be like, well, okay, that didn't necessarily help me figure out what I do believe, but that did help me figure out what I don't believe. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and so there's been a lot of that as well as I've been engaging with several different communities and several different, some of them like well into adulthood, some of them kind of just a few steps ahead of me, some of them at my spot or a few steps behind. And so it's been interesting throughout that process to just be like, okay, this thing from this community feels right. And that thing from that community feels right. And this thing from this community feels right. And all along the way, double checking all of that with God to be like, okay, how does this sit in me? How does this sit in my life? Am I moving in a direction that I feel like is good, even if I'm kind of course correcting here and there along the way? Mm. Um, Yeah, it feels a little bit like learning to drive where you're like a little shaky in the lane and you're not totally sure where the lines are. And you're like going 25 and a 50, but you're like, this is fine, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like it feels a little bit like that where I'm like, okay, I'm sort of getting there. I'm sort of starting to figure it out. Mm. Um, But Um, yeah, it's a it's a complex process for sure. mm. Yes, it is. It is. Well, and. Just maybe one more question on this than Anna is, and then we'll move into the last part Mm -hmm. of Rebecca's teaching here is uh, based on what she was teaching and and just some of the prompting of this, when you've gone outside the home, have there been, Mm. is there anything that comes to mind sort of immediately that feels like, yeah, this is reliable, durable information that I learned in the home as you've been checking and cross-checking across different communities. And then I'm sure there's this whole big category of lane shakiness <laughs> that you said as you're trying to sort yeah. it out. And then alternatively, is there something that you have learned outside of the home that you said this wasn't present in the home, but I'm really glad mm-hmm. this feels solid on that side of it. Do you know what I mean? So you have some yeah, stuff I that totally maybe has do. been confirmed, reconfirmed that you grew up with, but other stuff that you've learned that said, by that was not part of our home experience at all. Yeah, I think one of them that has been really foundational and has stayed really strong throughout is kind of the idea of um, hospitality and communication or sorry, hospitality and community as we have talked about it throughout my growing up. And I, it was one of those where I didn't totally realize how radical that was in a lot of ways until I 
left the home. And then I was like, oh, people don't make friends the way that we make friends. People don't open their homes in the way that we open our home. People don't have these intensive deep dive conversations within 20 minutes of meeting somebody like we do on a pretty regular basis. Um, And so that was something that as I left the home, I was more and more sure of like, no, this is something that's really important to me, this kind of honesty and vulnerability and openness in community. Um, And that kind of um, going above and beyond to find that community and support that community and be within that community is something that has been really important to me and is something that I'm continuing to value really strongly and look for and try and cultivate in my own community that I'm starting to build now that I'm kind of moving outside the house and trying to Mm -hmm. piece that together for myself. Um, But weirdly on the flip side, that's also the thing that has been shaky for me in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. Um, because part of what I am finding and working through is like okay if I've grown up in an environment where it's assumed that if you kind of go to radical lengths for your community your community will go to radical lengths for you Mm. and I'm finding that's not always the case so it's kind of a thing where I have to like hold both sides of that where I want to pursue that with the understanding that that won't always be pursued for me yeah and that's an incredibly vulnerable place to to be putting yourself out there for people and to I, we, I think, and maybe Rebecca, you could speak to this too. I think we live in a, in a world where people are living such lives of quiet desperation so often without then shepherds and guides and help to, to sort of navigate and work through that. And so it's really, I, I find it refreshing when there's people that there is a mutuality like Anna talked about. Um, but that's hard fought. I mean, we have all been through, I'm so fortunate that we had people around us when Hallie and I were going through just hell and back. And, and I've gone through that same hell and back several times in my life to have people around so that I could learn over time, however good or not good to start reaching out to other people. But I think just a lot of people these days, I run into so much brokenness and they don't have anywhere to turn. And then therefore they're kind of caught in it and don't increasingly become the kind of people that can reach out to others. It's a really tough place out there right now. Yes. Yes. And that happens in a microcosm kind of way when you're dealing with autism, because mm. you may pour all of your love and affection out on a child mm. and they may not respond back with love and affection. Yeah. Um, or you may pour out all your words to your child and they may not respond with speech. Um, we, we happen to be very blessed that our child is affectionate and we are allowed to hug him and he likes to be tickled. You know, he likes to be touched. Um, we know others that uh, are working just as hard as we are, but they don't get that. Their mm-hmm. child doesn't want them to touch them. Their child has no affect that's, you know, has no laughter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's really difficult um, to, to get to that place where you realize it's, And that's where you have to have some kind of source that you're returning, you're turning to for yourself. Um, cause you can't, and, and it's also important where you have a community of people who are like in our case, who are special needs parents and, um, offer special needs services because we wouldn't ever be able to make it on our own. Yeah. I, and I'm 
curious if you just even say more a little bit about that. I've been feeling pretty demoralized lately for the first time in maybe almost 30 years of ministry. I just feel like, oh my gosh, I'm getting tired. And my, mm-hmm. my soul's getting weary and I'm trying to find those places to to continue to have sustainable inside out life, that I'm not faking it, that I'm not just putting on an actor show, that there really is some interior world things happening that that make for a sustainable outward looking life. I don't know if you have found some of those places in, in your place as a mom. Um, I have found that it, um, there are one or two special needs moms that, that get it. But then there's also just friends that I have that are just good friends. And no matter what I'm going through, mm. whether I've had a horrible day with my son or not, um, are just there. But I find as I, you know, the bigger the challenge, it sounds weird. I don't need 20 people in my circle, Mm -hmm. you know, even if you find one or two, and even if you're just sending a text, it means like the world, um, you know, or getting on a zoom call with them every other week. Mm -hmm. Um, and I might talk about my son, but they're talking about some projects they're working on. And in some ways it doesn't matter because as long as you're being supported, um, I've just come to realize that, um, the person does not need to be in your exact position. It helps when you do have a, a couple of people because then you don't have to explain. You just say, this happened. And um, I had a, a horrible thing happen in a grocery store one time with my son. And I immediately called a special needs teacher that is retired. And he said, oh, um, you know, that's really actually quite typical of children in general. So um, don't blame this all on autism and you can step off the ledge of that building now. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, but you know, you don't really, you don't need a whole. So people can get overwhelmed and say, "I have to feel like I have to cultivate this whole, you know, church-sized group of people to support me through life." And I'm like, "No, start with one or two, mm-hmm. and start with a little piece, you know." Yeah. But yeah, you definitely need to invite others in. Yeah. Well, which is good. Yeah, but no, finish your thought. No, I was just saying it's it's kind of leading to um, what what uh, uh, our last little point. Is yeah, that's going to then go. get into the application. Yeah, for sure. Okay. You've done hand and eyes and hearing so far, so we have one more point and a bit of application. And we'll wrap up this episode. Yep. So, um, so the last um, the last echo that we don't want to miss that's um, happening between sixteen and twenty one is the verb take which is in Hebrew, lakach. And it happens in 16 verse, Genesis 16, verse 3, that Sarah takes Hagar, her Egyptian handmaid of 10 years, and gives her to Abraham as a wife. And Hagar is not consulted on this matter as far as we know. Hmm. Then in Genesis 21, it says, Hagar takes a wife for Ishmael from the land of Egypt. She is the one controlling the wife situation now. And and I looked this up. According to one commentator, she is the only mother in the Hebrew Bible that is said to do so, that is said to take a wife for her her child. It's usually done, I guess, by the father figure. And there's a little bit of humor here because it says um, she took a wife from Ishmael from the land of Egypt. I think like, She's so done with the Hebrews. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, no more of this. <laughs> yeah, she's just like, now I want a daughter-in-law who is Egyptian. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but, you know, as with the hand, the one doing the taking is the one with power. 
Um, so then I was going to ask the question of, so we have hands, eyes, hearing, and taking. These are the, the images and themes that are Rick O'Shea's that back and forth between the two chapters detailing Hagar's life. And what do these echoes um, ultimately give us? Um, and I think they give us at least three things, which is the first one was in a pedagogical sense, they teach us to look for the, at the whole picture when we're reading biblical narrative and expect there to be repetitions that are going to become very meaningful. Um, my Hebrew teacher says that repetition with variation is the number one way the Hebrew Bible sends a message or opens up a world. And I think she's right. Can you say that again, um, just for people listening that may have never heard that concept before? I think it's incredibly yeah. important for getting into the Bible. Yeah. So when you're reading the Bible, especially like when you're reading stories in Genesis, as you go along, you don't want to just, of course, you want to read every sentence carefully, but you also want to have a wide angle lens and you want to be able to um, note when something is repeated. Like we were talking about another theme of laughter how laughter started in the tent when Sarah didn't believe the, the angels telling her she was going to have a kid. And then it kept echoing and echoing and echoing all the way to when, you know, she kicks, kicks uh, Ishmael out because he's laughing at her son. So we have to kind of expect that repetition with variation. So it's not going to be, but, you know, the Bible kind of resists being, um, resists, being uh what's the word systematic mm -hmm. you can't like like force it into a certain pattern of symmetry so you look look for the repetition listen for the bell to ring but then expect there to be a, a meaningful variation in that ringing that'll make you say okay like um say, uh, hagar lift up lifted up her voice a uh, voice and wept but then the angel and uh, talks to then the angel says, no, I actually heard your son. Mm. You know, so something like that makes a repetition with a variation that, that generates a question. That's yeah. really, really good when you're reading these stories. That's good. Yeah. Right. And one of my favorite things as well with the repetition and the variation of all of that is that, yes, it is within specific stories like the Hagar story where you see that repetition flipped and that tells you that something has changed. But also, yeah. if you read the whole of the Old Testament and the New Testament as a story, you see that happen over and over again, where there are yeah. ideas or themes that are brought in in one story and flipped on their head later. And you get to see that repetition, which is part of why that um, cross-referencing and not pulling passages out of context or just reading a verse is so important because you have to read it in the lens of the wider story. Mm. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, all right, take us so into then, the second one, yeah. Yeah, the second one is things are, are hard going for Hagar for a long time. Uh, and the first time she escapes, God's angel sends her right back where she came from. Mm. But with the vital difference of a prophecy about Ishmael. So it generates the good question of how does being seen by God or addressed by God enable us to endure long-term hardship mm. and you know we've been talking about my son's autism but how does that being seen by God when she says you are a God who sees being addressed by him when nobody else is talking to her enable us and the what I came up with is very simple and I don't want to sound reductionistic here but it's hope mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. without that feeling of being specifically seen what what hope do you have and like it really, and you need that sense of hope to 
to go back home, so to speak, to that really horrible situation, to wake up and do it another day. Yeah, I was that. Um, I came across a passage in the in the New Testament at one point where the disciples say to Jesus, "Where else we? Where would? Where else would we? Where else are you going to go? Where else yeah. are you going to go?" And and I just think of a couple times in my life when I felt that I was almost utterly alone and felt confronted in a good way by God asking the question, would you still follow me? Even if it was just you, even if you had to do it by yourself. And, and that verse from that song came back, you know, I've decided mm-hmm. to follow Jesus, no turning back though. None go with me. Still, I would follow like those places. It's the, this kingdom story is the only place that I found a durable, genuine, lasting hope to which you can, you can point your eyes to. I, I, there isn't anything else in this world that isn't going to ultimately fail or blow away or end, however good it might be, it all comes to an end. And so I think this is a really profound idea that you've teased out here, Rebecca, is that to to deal with hardship or loneliness, there really is only this one place of hope that I've ever found. Yeah. Yes. You know, Hagar would be the consummate tragic figure, if not for God, Mm. through whom she becomes the liberated grandmother of a great nation you know, through Ishmael. Um, and she also gains a very intimate relationship with God who opens her heart to realities that she wouldn't otherwise grasp. Mm. That which is she's loved, she's honored, and she's destined for good things despite her foreignness and her low social status. Um, so, um, and the third thing I just wanted to quickly say, which was um, what, the, what these ricocheting um, themes bring out is humanity. These, these two chapters show us how human everyone is. Sarah's, so Sarah's need for control, her deep offense when things don't go her way, her emotions turning on a dime in terms of Abraham, his passivity in one moment, his obedience to God in another moment, despite his absolute heartbreak. And in terms of Hagar, her rivalry with Sarai, with Sarai which may reflect how deeply she has resented her servitude. Um, what it asks the question, what makes us human in the worst sense and in the best sense when we are faced with long-term hardship? And the worst sense for me is how much we can end up hurting each other. I heard a Jewish rabbi one time say, we don't want our pain to generate more pain, um, which I found a very pr- yeah. profound statement. I, I think of almost every time I've, I've caused somebody pain, it's almost always out of my own pain. That mm-hmm. I've heard that too. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yes. And in the best sense, I think the long-term hardship, um, the harsh circumstances draw from us those cries or confessions from the wilderness, um, from the heart that, that prompts a divine response. Um, you have to get to that place where you've just put your child under a bush and walked away and lifted up your voice and wept. I don't think she would have done it if she hadn't gotten to that place. Hmm. So draws out our humanity. Yeah, that's in the best way. It does. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I just now that we've gone through this story and and we can get ready to wrap up this episode, but I there's a couple things that I've been thinking about lately is there's such a difference between biblical literacy and or I'm sorry, biblical familiarity mm-hmm. and biblical literacy and for the Hagar story or Hagar story, like I, I have neither. I'm, I'm barely familiar with the story, <laughs> but also too the way that you've talked through it, Rebecca. I just think if I was listening to this podcast, I would want to have notes alongside of me and kind of go back through and not feel intimidated or overwhelmed. It, it to to achieve or attain any kind of biblical literacy just really takes some time. And I think 
I don't know what your background has been, but for sure for me, I think some of the evangelical community, which I've, I've walked, there's a real discomfort if they don't feel they've walked away from a biblical study without having at least five applicable takeaways that are, you know, the text themselves. This takes a long time to get into the world of scripture, but if you just let it be an ongoing process and journey of increasing literacy and you don't have to get it all at once, it actually can be quite exhilarating. Well, I think you have an advantage, actually, because I think sometimes we become so familiar, we're almost jaded about these mm. texts. We're like, yeah. part of us might think, yeah, I know about that story already. You know, skip ahead to something else I don't know about. But that's why, you know, I had I had difficulty growing up. I suffered um, abuse under the church system. And so when I said I still was a Christian and I found my way back through Jewish interpretation. Mm. That was how I found my I found my way back through this text and reading it in a certain way where it was like wiped clean of other destructive meanings and brought forth with new um, life giving interpretations and just this sense of playfulness about the text that you don't have to yet you know you don't like you said you don't have to have it all figured out sometimes it's best to what did Jesus say something about um, Unless you come to me uh, like like a child, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sitting on my desk right now at this moment is a greeting card that I found at a, a drugstore. And it says, it takes a long time to become a child. Wow. Or it was at wow. Pablo, Pablo Picasso. Sorry. It takes a long time to become young. That mm. was the word. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pablo Picasso. And I thought, yes. Reading these, reading these stories with young eyes is a good thing. Yeah. Is a good thing. It really is. Absolutely. And hearing you talk a little bit about the idea of coming back to that and coming back to faith and that light and playfulness through the Jewish interpretation, it's something that I've actually, that has been a lot of my own faith journey in a lot of ways where I would say before I even really had a relationship with God or was sure that I believed in God, I loved studying the Bible in this way. And it was one of the only times that we would sit and talk about God or the Bible or faith or whatever. And I was actually interested and engaged in what was going on instead of just waiting for it to be over. Um, Mm. And then as I have been growing and developing in my own relationship with God, this way of studying and this way of looking at the text and interacting with the word and interacting with God and interacting with other people has been so foundational in how I've understood my own relationship with God and and still it's it is the thing that i turn to when i want to talk about god or talk about faith or talk about community it this is this is where i go and this is what i do um mm-hmm. and it's it can be so beautiful and impactful and there's so much that is missed in not studying this way for sure yes yes or you know getting again getting to the application part too too fast mm-hmm. 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 absolutely well, we can um, we can leave it here. We would uh, maybe maybe let's just do one last uh, piece. But um, if each of us had one takeaway, and this isn't necessarily application, but something that I'm going to be sort of thinking about or or sitting with for a while, maybe we just each I, the one takeaway I have for sure still has to do with the idea of what does it mean to live a generational kind of life, where not everything that maybe I would want to see happen in my life would be revealed, and what does it mean to live in, in hardship on behalf of future? Those those are big takeaways, Anna. 
Yeah, I think mine is the um, repetition with shifting implications. That was so cool. Because I think I've kind of understood that almost intuitively, but I'd never heard it said that way before. And I think that's a really beautiful way to kind of summarize a very vast and complicated idea. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So l- let me let me give a shameless plug for Robert Alter's Go for it. Um, the art of the art of biblical narrative because there's some good chapters exactly on that. Hmm. Um, what mine would be. Um, it ain't over till it's over. Yeah, mm-hmm. love that. Yeah, love that. Well, we would love to have you on Deeper Magic again, Rebecca. I, I, my understanding is that there's a fair amount of Old Testament passages out there, so I, I, bet, we could <laughs> dig, I bet we could dig and do a few more. Have you seen? Have you seen how fat that book is? <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Well, we do just, we appreciate you taking all the time. I know how much study goes into this for you too. You yeah. don't just sit down and do a podcast. You really think through all these things. Your notes are meaningful and extensive. And we're just so grateful that you joined us today. Oh, it was my complete pleasure to do so. And I'm honored that you asked me. Yeah. And I'm kind of sad that I have a feeling you and Anna will be texting back and forth, but I'm yes. going to be out of this loop into the future. And, and I understand why. <laughs> <laughs> this is how this usually goes. This is how this it? goes. Yeah. Everybody, you know, I, I reach out and say, hey, would you come on the podcast? And then I get left behind. So, but and then I, I make new friends. Yeah, that's exactly right. This is one of you is content with us. <laughs> <laughs> one of us has some work to do. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love it. Well, that's great. Well, for uh, for Anna and for Rebecca, this is Peter, and this has been The Deeper Magic. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye. Deeper Magic is produced by Audio on the Rocks, and our music for this episode is Auroras of Saturn by Music L Files. You can head on over to filmmusic.io and find that there, all licensed under Creative Commons 4.0, viewable on the site as well. <laughs> <laughs>